Welcome to the Business Resilience Decoded podcast, brought to you by Asfalis Advisors and the Disaster Recovery Journal. Crisis management in today's world is ever-changing, and this podcast is our commitment to help you navigate successful outcomes for any crisis you may face. I'm your host, Vanessa Matthews. I specialize in providing insights and solutions for crisis, continuity, and resilience across industries from real estate and healthcare to terrorism in the airline and transportation worlds. No matter what industry you're in, this podcast will provide you the tools to build resilience in your organization. Welcome back to another episode of the Business Resilience Decoded podcast. Today, we are talking to Matthew Ike. The title of today's episode is the Russia-Ukraine conflict and its effect on the energy sector. Matthew is the executive vice president of the United States Energy Development Corporation. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Vanessa. <laughs> How are you doing today? That's a beautiful day here in Dallas. I'm doing great. <laughs> well, that's exciting. So look, I'm I'm super excited. This is the first podcast where we have that's fully dedicated to the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, so I'm pretty interested in learning more about you and for you to be able to share the work that you do with our subscribers. So we'll just start off with, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you do and what led you to working in the energy industry? Sure. Uh, so again, my name is Matthew Ike. Uh, my foray into the industry really comes from a finance background. So a couple decades ago, uh, as I started into a, a finance career, uh, I ended up getting heavily invested myself uh, and a lot of my portfolios in the energy space. And by random circumstance, uh, my in-laws actually owned a real estate uh, and energy company. And circa around 2003, uh, the opportunity arose for me to do some consulting originally on the real estate side. And I found this opening in our energy company and built a uh, finance division in ARM into what we do capital formation, raising capital and investing it in the energy space. So it's by a lot of luck and circumstance uh, that the, the future is met, but really nepotism, I guess, is the answer. That's probably a better answer. <laughs> that is funny. So you have the energy component and the financial side. Yes, ma'am. Yep. <laughs> well, that's got to be pretty exciting. <laughs> so we're all very well aware of, of the conflict that's been happening between Russia and Ukraine. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a resolution in sight or happening anytime soon. And historically, uh, my my question is, what what have what have you seen in terms of foreign conflict and its effect on the energy sector within the United States? So uh, this time, is, I hate saying things are different. This this invasion appears to have a, a bit more influence than is the norm for major geopolitical events. And ultimately, it's because of the situation that we're currently in, uh, in terms of the supply and demand imbalance of traditional you know, oil and natural gas and our global consumption and, and production rates. So uh, unfortunately, what normally is, is just kind of a price spike that occurs for a short period of time because of geopolitical tensions uh, has become much more, uh, right? You're starting to see an influence uh, policy, price, uh, ultimately your supply and demand of the actual end commodity where, you know, the Middle East and is going to supply, uh, ultimately where Europe is going to get their oil and natural gas to produce. Uh, unfortunately, it's done things like bring coal back to the market, right? It's, it's had a, a really unique effect because Russia has taken 
its place in terms of its ability to produce uh, a significant amount of the necessary daily supply and put itself in a position during these high prices to have more control than it should, right? If prices were, were 50 or $60 a barrel uh, and there was more supply coming to market, Russia wouldn't be able to have the global impact that they have right now. But because supply is so constrained and demand remains so strong, uh, unfortunately, it gives them way too much leverage where in most circumstances they would not, mm-hmm. which is very similar to why they invaded back in 2014 in Crimea was oil was high, uh, the markets were tight, and they had more influence than, than they would normally be able to have. So they tend to wait for that imbalance to, to make these moves because then people have less tools against them. And anytime you go to sanction them, you're actually raising the price. So they're getting more power. It's like, it's this horrible cycle uh, that, that unfortunately we're in right now. Yeah. So in thinking about the effect of the Russia-Ukraine war, I'm going back to the physical attack that happened within Ukraine and specifically what happened to their utilities. Do you also see any changes based on what, what Russia did from a physical per- perspective that you're seeing in your environment? Yeah, uh, so many changes, actually. The, the, the nature of this that expands from here and the risk management, it's crazy to think about, right? Because now when you think about you know the physical impact of not being able to get oil or gas to other countries, right? Kind of the interdependence we all have, uh, the, the fact that Russia took over a nuclear plant, which supplies a lot of energy to the surrounding area. Ultimately, it's really concerning because people no longer domestically feel safe mm. with their own production when relying on unreliable partners. So mm. I guess the one good effect that is likely to come from all of this is that although we live in a global and interdependent workplace, uh, especially in commodities, I think that might start to change where people realize that global security is going to come from a lot more domestic production from each country, uh, a lot more reliance on renewables, a lot more reliance on their own supplies of oil and gas versus allowing the world's worst actors to be in control, right? So, you know, three years ago, you would have thought it was almost impossible that the U.S. would drill more oil wells because of the the general ESG movement, right? You're probably going to see the U.S. go back to being an independent producer and, and the strongest producer because geopolitically, it insulates us from outside actors, right? So I I think there are major changes. I also think it's the same reason why people will increase their investment back into nuclear, back into renewables, because ultimately it provides more domestic security to not be relying on Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, right? Like, just think about it. The the control comes from some of the world's worst actors. So I, I think there is a impact from this that really reverberates for a long period of time. Yeah. So what do you think are the short-term effects on energy that we're seeing in the U.S. as a result of this conflict? And I would say both for the individuals and for corporations and businesses. The worst kind, unfortunately. So I think people are realizing that, you know, the U.S. on a global scale isn't as competitive as everyone thinks because we have relatively high cost of doing business, high taxes, high labor, high health care, right? What's made us excessively competitive is cheap energy. Right? When we get cheap energy, we can be competitive on a global stage. So I think there is a major impact. We see it as consumers, right? Our discretionary spending when, when gasoline gets too high. Companies see the same thing. 
so ultimately, I, I think there's a real issue that we're, we're coming to bear. And I'll give a couple of examples. You know, diesel, people don't realize that diesel is a refined product that you have to combine both light and heavy crude from. So you have to import crude. Even if you're producing more than you need, you still have to import the heavy crude to make diesel. And we are really short on the refining of distillate. Well, if you don't have diesel, you can't do long haul transport. If you can't do long haul transport, inflation goes crazy everywhere. So we're running into a major buzzsaw that diesel is the lifeblood uh, of this country because it is all the transportation that we need. And without it and with constraints in it, even if more oil comes to market, you can't necessarily make more diesel. So we have to build out the refining capacity. We have to get more efficient or we're going to run into really big problems, right? And, and we're starting to see it on the natural gas side where because oil production went down, the associated natural gas production went down over the last several years. Well, natural gas is the electricity fueler, right? That's how we create all the electricity. And as we keep putting more and more demands for more houses, more cars, especially as we start to go to EVs, there's not enough gas right now to provide the electricity. And as storage and natural gas goes down, and now we're selling it to Europe to replace Russian gas, it's going to be an internal strife where we used to be able to get cheap natural gas because it was only domestically priced. It's going to be globally priced. And if people don't realize, well, we're now paying a lot, $6 in MCF for gas, it's costing $40 in MCF in Europe. And if, if that pricing parity came to the US, could you imagine if the average consumer or business saw a 10x rise in their electricity bills? It would blow our minds, but that's unfortunately where we're getting to because the, the markets are becoming global, right? And not just domestic in natural gas. And if a, a oil company can sell it globally, why would it sell it in the US for six? They can sell it for 40 to the somewhere out outside the coast of the US, right? It's, it's just crazy. So a lot. The answer is the business risk right now is that prices are going to be substantially higher for at least the next three to five years, mm -hmm. because it would take such a heavy capital investment here in this country to get us up to where we need to be. We're at least three years behind and we may never get there. Fusion Risk Management is your North Star for operational resilience. The Fusion Framework System provides a foundation that enables you to understand how your business works, how it breaks, and how to put it back together again, which allows you to make data-driven decisions so you can anticipate, prepare, respond, and learn through business disruptions and major crisis events. Head to the link in our show notes to request a demo today. Fusion Risk Management, building a more resilient world together. There's so many things that you said that I would love to unpack <laughs> from single dependency that the U.S. has on other countries, um, the concern. So from a transportation and supply chain perspective, it's not just the people, it's not just the lack of drivers, but it's also what the drivers need to get products back and forth. Yep. And then to your point, you know, there's 330 plus or minus, you know, million people within America and other countries like China, like India, over a billion plus people. So we always talk to, you know, 95% of the consumer market is outside of the United States. So we're really a small fish in a big pond, right? Yeah. So you've, wow. Okay. So, so we talked about short-term, let's go to long-term. Yeah. What do we see as potential long-term impacts if this war extends into 2023? And, and one thing I'm thinking about too is this recession at the time of this recording, it's in July of 2022. From all the things that you shared, it sounds like another recession or just adding on to the one that, that we're already in. 
Yeah. Or causing a lot. I mean, whether it's the chicken or the egg here, right? Uh, it's definitely a cycle that we're getting into. And so I think the likelihood of a recession is stronger. The, the good news is a recession will dampen demand, which will lower price, right? So if there's less consumption of something, then ultimately the price will come down. So uh, you might cause a recession from high prices, but you'll also cure it under the same process. So as horrible as it sounds, uh, there are there is a silver lining in that, that, that you know lower demand lowers price. I think the real difference now is people are starting to go back to feeling that energy is no longer a guarantee. You know, you're talking about you know the global numbers of eight billion people and growing exponentially. Trying to live like 330 Americans, right? 33 million Americans. Everyone wants our standard of lifestyle. Nobody wants to drop our lifestyle back to a second world or or lower, right? Everyone wants an increased uh, lifestyle. And so you're going to have more and more energy consumption. Um, so I think when you really look uh, where people are starting to look at it in a different way, that it's just not always going to be there, that people have to start worrying very intrinsically to their, com- their country and where are their supplies coming from and mm-hmm. can they ensure the security of those supplies. And again, I, I really do think what I mentioned, the only real answer is in all of the above. Anyone who says it's only fossil fuels or only renewables really just doesn't understand the math of consumption. And I think most countries are going to start to realize that making decisions like decommissioning nuclear is a really bad decision because nuclear is clean and green and renewable. And yes, it has some nasty side effects, but ultimately it is something that's homegrown and something that a country can control at a time when Russia decides to go to war they can still produce their nuclear power, right? Yeah. So I do think in all of the above is gonna become a much more common discussion that starts to come and you'll have hopefully at least one thing will be less politicized over time, if it's true or not, but maybe one thing like energy production and consumption will be less politicized and will everyone realize we're all working for the same common good and start to actually produce more of everything and lower all the prices. I think it's 10 years out, but I think it'll it'll hopefully get there for oil, gas, renewables, wind, you name it, right? It'll become a much more of a priority that cheap energy is what made, honestly, the great American experiment work. Yep. And it's really what is allowing the world to industrialize. So let's get cheaper and more affordable energy for everybody. Yeah. So I know we have to wrap, but one more question. So as we prepared uh, for this podcast in the green room, you and I talked a little bit about crisis management, physical security, business resilience, professionals and practitioners. And my question for you, um, because you understand, and I would say have a respect for what we do in this profession, but also being a member of the executive leadership team, what recommendations do you have for your colleagues and risk crisis management and continuity about what they should be doing to prepare for the short and long and long-term effects of energy? Yeah, so I'm gonna give you a much more macro answer to how to talk to the C-suite. I think that'll, it's across all industries, right? So I think the one thing as a partner in this business um, and really as a, a C-suite member, a lot of us, not all of us, are very visionary and focus a lot on these huge magnitude events uh, for risk management. So for us and a lot of people in the US, it's cybersecurity, right? Because we have so many investors and because we're worried about infrastructure shutdowns. These massive magnitude events that actually don't happen very often suck up a lot of the energy in the room for C-suites. The reality is the businesses that we all operate in have a lot more risk that are day-to-day and tactical and are much more important because they're much more likely to happen. 
and and how to get those heard up to the C-suite when they linger around because they don't seem as impactful, I think are really more important than these massive strategic thought process that a lot of C-suite executives like to do, right? So from my standpoint, how do you get it up? It's really through good process, mm-hmm. making sure that uh, these items that you're handling day to day but require input on a higher level have a way of getting heard and then being talked about when when a lot of the C-suite members want to talk about bigger items. So as an example, in my business, the health, safety, environmental is not something that's exciting on a day-to-day basis. But honestly, it's something that we have created massive transparency and KPIs. And on our dashboard, every single week, outside of the major things that you think of, like budget, spending, capital raise, all these things, on the line of the six most important things to our company is our HSE score for the week and for the year and how many incidents, how many reportable transactions. Now, that doesn't sound like fun for a C-suite, but at the end of the day, it's the real risk management. So whatever division you're in, as you're, as you're managing this, getting the executives to realize that that's a metric that they need to understand because the avoidance of risk is worth so much more, Yeah. right? And, and the, But we don't say because it, it doesn't cost us anything. It didn't happen. Right. So it didn't happen. So why am I going to talk about it? Well, it didn't happen because you had the policies and procedures in place to avoid it. So my, my answer is try to get it up to a level where it's an indicator that they see daily and they rank amongst their, their global peers so they can see, hey, how many events did a company my size, bigger and smaller have in, in this specific what is considered tactical, but super important. So hopefully that's helpful to you. The key word that you said in my mind is process, right? And what is it that I'm, what am I trying to communicate? Who am I trying to communicate to? And what's the process or, or, or the mechanism that's allowing me to elevate this body of information? But another thing that you mentioned was also KPIs and dashboards. And at the end of the day, I I am a visionary in, in my company. I'm not the integrator. I'm not the COO. I'm not the person that figures out step A, step B, step step C. I'm the person with 20 ideas. Three are great. I'm all about strategy and vision uh, and relationships. But the execution of what happens is just not my strength. And so I'm kind of like a squirrel. Having <laughs> that KPI weekly to you helps you see it. Yep. And then present. Yeah, I it's, it's hard for us. Yeah, that makes sense. So where can our listeners connect with you after today's episode? Uh, I, I would go through either LinkedIn or go to US Energy, which is usedc.com. Come to our website, check us out, uh, ask us questions. If you want to talk about risk management, we have a whole team. that can go through that. Uh, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, feel free. Uh, so I'd love to chat with anybody who has any questions or comments. Thank you for listening to the Business Resilience Decoded podcast brought to you by Asphalus Advisors and Disaster Recovery Journal. Make sure you check out the show notes for this episode to see all the upcoming events, programs, and ways we can support you. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a review, and share it with a friend. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.